Hello! He is Samuel Broden. And she is Kristen R.B. Peterson. We are your new play-based advocate BFFs, and we are answering all your early childhood burning questions. Each episode, we are honoring play in childhood by exploring how imagination, creativity, and hands-on experiences can shape young minds. From the quest for the perfect Play-Doh recipe to the epic battle of cleanup time, we've got you covered. So whether you're an administrator looking for ways to embrace more play in your program, or a classroom teacher looking for new ideas and inspiration, we've got you covered. So grab a cup of coffee or wine and join us to laugh, learn, reflect, and honor play. Let's get going. Laura Shea with me for this podcast recording today. And Laura Shea is from Little Stories That Stick. And she's going to chat with us about something that's very near and dear to her heart. She's going to talk to us about storytelling. Because a lot of times as adults, we feel weird telling stories out loud to children for some silly reason. I don't know why we do, but we do. So you're going to like... Help us not feel so silly. Yay. Or embrace embrace the silly. Okay. Yeah. And just tell the silly stories. Because I I think I feel I I maybe don't. I I don't feel silly, but maybe I did at the beginning of my practice. Yeah. But like I just embrace it. But I think there's still a lot of adults out there who feel self-conscious or weird or they just aren't used to it about just like not having a book there, but just like telling a story with their own made up characters and their own made up storyline to children. It doesn't have to be perfect, but like we feel weird in it. So help us get over that yeah. weird. Yeah. I mean, okay. I think that. How do we start? Well, I think one thing you always say, right, is like picture your best friend. I think we need to remember the majority of children, whatever way they show up and we show up in their lives, idolize us already. And they are actually quite rarely critical when they are, they're like blatantly blunt, right? And like, I know we can all think of that one time, like even this morning, my husband and I were saying the thing we love the most about one another on our bodies. And my son just like goofed on. He's like, I love daddy's nose hairs, right? (laughs) And like, they're just going to tell it to you, right? So Mm -hmm. even if your story ends up not entertaining them or interesting in them, or it's boring, or they hate it, whatever the things are you're thinking that's stopping you, they'll tell you. And then you'll take the feedback and do it differently next time. Yeah. Um, his nose hairs. Yeah. I mean, that's amazing. Know, it was I said his forearms, and then it was hilarious because he's like, he doesn't have forearms. And I was like, oh, cute. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Sometimes when I'm sleeping with my son, I feel like he has forearms because he like gets his face all night long. I mean, hey, that's a good storyline right there. Yeah. I mean, you can tell a whole story about a man with forearms and long nose hair. I mean, oh my goodness. the sillier and the more absurd, the better. That's the great thing that I love about storytelling is, A, you know your audience. Because unless you're a professional storyteller that's rocking up to a school or a library with an audience or of children you've never met, It's children that you see regularly in your lives. So you know the characters they're interested in. You know if they like, you know, humor. You know if they like exciting, you know, suspense. You can use those things that they're already interested in. And then you just tell a story. I mean, 
you really just have to quiet your brain, which as adults, I know you've talked about a lot is how creative we were as children. And, you know, along the way, for many of us, something has happened that has caused us to have this inner voice that's telling us we aren't creative or is muting our creativity. And that I think is the biggest barrier. Mm. Tell me if I'm wrong out there. No. There's something else that's stopping you, but. That's so sad. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I think one of the, one of my favorite things when I was, and I think I've told this story before, but maybe on my other podcast or maybe in a different training when I was chatting with you is that one of my favorite, a couple of my favorite memories from when I was teaching at Butterfly Hill was when we had this giant water tower and I was just trying to pass some time, like as we were transitioning from outdoors to in and it was lunchtime and we were just trying to like stall a little bit and I was trying to I had nothing I didn't have any books so I would had run out of songs so I was just trying to keep their attention and there's a big water tower across the street and so I came up with this story about these mermaids that lived inside the water tower and had this enormous house in the water tower and it just like I started telling this, I don't know, random random things that were happening inside the water tower. And the story lived on and on and on for years. And then we started a forest school program. And all of a sudden, we started telling stories about how these mermaids lived in this well, forest school. There was this old like hole in the ground that had been the base of an old house at one point in time, 100 years ago. And we called it the hole and the children crawl in and out of this old like footer of a house really is what it is. And the mermaids lived in this hole. And then there was like this like old well hole right next to the house from an old well. It was an old well at one point in time. And we had it covered so that nobody can fall in this little hole. And that was like the shoot from the the mermaids would go in to get to the pond. So they would go under the ground to get to the pond that was like mm-hmm. or the lake that was right across the like right under the over the hill. So uh, the mermaid story just like lived on and it kept growing and growing and growing. And at one point, my older son came with me to forest school at one point and I brought a lot of like crystals and shells with and I sent him ahead and I had him go hide all of the crystals and the shells underneath the leaves and grow stuff at the bottom of the hole so when the children got there that day they would find all of the shells and the crystals that the mermaids had left behind so it was just the story kept growing and it lived on and it was like part of our culture of Butterfly Hill is these mermaids that just kept showing up in stories everywhere and they lived all around us in various places so that's like the power and the beauty of stories is that even years later like I still remember them and I'm sure the children still remember them and they probably still years later go by that water tower and they're like do you remember the mermaids that teacher honey said live in that water tower like how magical is that Yep. And that probably, like you said, started awkwardly. Yes, it did. Story or two were probably, (laughs) you know, very typical. There was like one day, you know, some mermaids. And I'm racking my brain. And then you just like ended it. Yeah. And then it 
evolve and change. And then, like you said, I mean, I call it my storytelling muscle. So I find just like any other muscle, you have to stretch it, you have to work on it, you have to practice it. Anybody can be a storyteller, you just have to practice. And you find your own way of doing it. And the things that, you know, you enjoy or that you you know, get excited about, and maybe it's that, you know, you only have two or three stories in your repertoire, but those are stories that you know really, really well, you know, when to raise your voice and when to like make eye contact and when to pull the kids participation in, in whatever ways, Mm -hmm. or you never tell the same story twice or like whatever it might be, you kind of start to find your own in it, but you have to just give into it and, and practice because once you start doing it, like you said, it becomes enjoyable for you. And the most incredible thing that does happen, especially when you start um, listening and sharing the stories of the children is that community piece. It becomes the culture of your classroom or even in my home, there's a story that my husband tells all the time to my son or a character, Ricky, who rides a dirt bike. And my son loves riding dirt bikes. And my daughter hears stories about a little girl and her horse, Phoenix. And they're always stories about the horse and the girl going to sleep because we're always encouraging her to sleep. But it becomes the culture of it. So then, you know, now we hear the kids randomly be like, oh, I wonder what Ricky would do there. Or I, I tell stories about a couple kids and one of them is Cody and he has two moms. And when we were at the beach, Kane noticed a family with two moms and was like, hey, that's like Cody. They just become a part of, you know, the, the your, sto- you know, mm-hmm. your day to day. Yeah. They be- just like Harry Potter or any books that we read, we fall in love with those characters and those storylines and those authors. And, you know, you don't have to think of yourself as the next Stephen King. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my Um, goodness. You just have to think of it as a way to really foster a love of learning and literacy, a way to really bond. And for me, the thing I've been practicing a lot is it forces me to slow down and be present. Because Mm. you really cannot be making up a story on the spot while you're thinking of your to-do list and what you're cooking for dinner and, um, you know, your job all at the same time. No, (laughs) you can't. That's so true. I can do that during, I can do that while I'm reading a book though. Like while I'm reading Mm -hmm. a children's book, I can read the whole entire dang thing while I'm thinking about a million other things and not have any idea what I just read. Out loud. Out loud. I'm and so good at that. Even ask some follow-up questions yeah. <laughs> based on your general listening. gist. Yeah, <laughs> oh for goodness. sure. But if you're, you know, obviously that's using a different part of our brain when we're just reading something that's already written for us out loud versus having to, you know, weave together something that again, you know, if I start, you know, telling it about some, let's say animals, and then all of a sudden shift to a different setting and completely different, you know, insects and humans, like, you know, my five-year-old might notice. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um. Okay. Have you noticed that, do you need, do you do any sort of, um, 
in the classrooms that you've been in after, you know, you've been storytelling for quite some time. Do you notice that the children start storytelling with each other to each other or like with in their play? Yeah, I think, I mean, honestly, children are, are always telling stories in their play. I mean, my yeah, daughter the other day, very true. I had, I had her home just without my son and she was narrating, you know, through song. Hmm. I think it was to Farmer and the Dell. So I was like, I'm driving in the car. I'm going over here. You know, and she was just like, so true. Yeah. Telling her play through a story, right? That's the way she was articulating it. But what I have found is, especially when, yes, I'm telling stories. And if there are maybe some type of rituals around it, whether it's something that you say before you start a story or a certain, um, like I would light a little tea light candle or maybe it's um, just before bed, right? Like if there's a routine or something predictable or a ritual, I you start to see that show up mm-hmm. and they're almost doing that. They're playing teacher, right? They're mimicking. Yeah. So in the same way that you might see them pick up a book and start, instead of reading it forward, you know, they're sitting in a chair, nobody's in front of them, but they're turning the pages and you know, oh, they're playing teacher. So I start to see little ways that they might have a notebook and a pencil and they're pretending to write and they're saying, oh, I'm writing down so-and-so's story. Or they get the tea lights and they put it down and they're sitting there and they're like, I'm telling a story. So if you start to look for it, you'll see those little ways where you can tell that they're actually mimicking, you know, me doing the storytelling. I mean, I don't know. I mean, you're all into camp and, and stuff. Do you do ghost stories around a fire? Mm, no, just because like, I, I don't want my kids to be scared at night. Cause I just want them to go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, fair. But let's say that was something that you did all the time before, you know, you sat around a fire, you know, when you camp with your family. Um, If there are times where like my children right now are downstairs pretending to go on a hike and they have this little bag and they've got sticks in it to make a fire. I wouldn't be surprised if that was part of our, you know, routine and ritual that we told, you know, stories, let's say maybe not ghost stories around a fire, that if I caught them sitting around a fire, you know, pretend fire downstairs, they'd also be pretend telling stories to one another. So you kind of see it come out in their like playing stories. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Which is kind of meta, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm not actually telling a story. I'm pretending to be the adult telling the story. (laughs) And it really, it is true. Play really is stories. It it really is like Mm -hmm. a lot of it. The imaginary play. Yeah. Oh, I mean, almost, almost all of it. I, I would say even, you know, I've seen the way children verbalize during process art. Yeah. And even be a story. Hmm. Because if you think about it, I imagine, I don't know, I wouldn't say that I'm like a visual artist, but often while you're going through the process of some type of messy art, painting, whatever, there's a, there is a dialogue you're having in your head, even if it's just about like, what is this color going to do here and whatever, it might not be a story in the conventional way that we think of it of, you know, 
a character with an introduction and a setting and things. But I've had children that have told a story that's literally, I'm getting the red paint and I'm putting it on the paper and I'm spreading it all around. I mean, yeah, know, they're telling us what they're doing. I, I, you know, if I'm calling you to catch up on, you know, hey, Kristen, what are you doing today? Yeah. Tell me, oh, I just made lunch. I, I, you know, I had a ham and cheese sandwich and now I'm getting ready. I'm going to go out and run to the store. You're telling me a story. Stories are so powerful, even in business. I mean, or in my presentations when I'm speaking, the best learning that I can give somebody else is by telling them a story. Like they learn the best if I can tell them a story and relate what I'm trying to teach them through story. And if you think about it, when I am coming up with new creative ideas, when I'm in my head daydreaming or thinking like I'm a futuristic person, I'm always thinking of the future and ideas and and kind of live in my head. I'm telling stories in my head, really, about all the things that could happen or will happen or I want to see happen. Like I'm really just daydreaming one big story all the time. Mm -hmm. Whoa. Yes. Now I have a question to ask you. What? When you visualize in your head. Yeah. Do you see like vivid color? Yeah. Yeah. Like if you close your eyes right now and I said, there's a blue dog running across a black street. Yeah. Going up to a white house with a yellow door. Yep. I cannot. You can't see color in your head? Nope. Really? Really. What do and you see? And it's like a thing. Uh, uh, n- nothing. Like you nothing. Can't. Like I can't, I can't like visualize what I've, I learned in the same way that the majority of people can. It's a thing with the way really? your brain works. When I was pregnant, my husband and I went through a hypnobirthing course. Yeah. And part of the hypnobirthing, a lot of it was visualization and things. Yeah. And I finally asked, I was like, okay, but like, am I really supposed to be seeing like the red ribbon going across and like the blue ribbon? And my partner is like, yeah. And I know, you know, it's red, but like, do you see it red? And he's like, yeah. And then our doula explained this thing that some people can really vividly see when they visualize and others don't have that awesome luxury. Wow. Yeah. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. I'm sure you have other really cool, amazing things about you that we don't. Yeah, obviously. I mean, obviously. (laughs) But I always am curious what it's like to hear stories from other people that can see that way. Yeah. I always wonder what it would be like to hear my stories if you can actually see them in your brain. They're amazing. (laughs) So, I mean, tuck that in your back pocket and take it with you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Stories are amazing to see in your brain. Hyperfantasia is what it is. The condition of having extremely vivid mental imagery. And the opposite is called athletic. Fantasia, where Aphantasia. mental visual imagery is not present. So there's either hyperfantasia or, and which is more common, okay. or what I have. Okay. So I wonder, like, if it just like the regular person just sees like regular. Sees. 
I think that most people can see vivid imagery and color. Okay. And, yeah, I can see. And, I can like picture anything. Yeah. Hmm. Like even like imaginary made up stuff. Oh, yeah. Things you've never seen. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we just imagined a whole entire thing called a megapus in my house the other day. (laughs) (laughs) Because Knox went to go see the Meg, too, with his sister. And then they created this whole new character that they thought should be in the movie called the megapus, which would be like a mega octopus. And it would be like this giant Meg mixed with an octopus. That would be like this giant prehistoric creature. And so then my daughter, who is 17, drew it when she got home. Uh, and uh-huh. then it, it now lives in our lake. So the Megapus lives uh, lake ooh. right outside our house. And um, it, yeah, it's the Megapus. So I can visualize the Megapus that lives in the lake, even though it doesn't exist. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which I mean, I can, in my mind, I can picture it, but I can't actually mentally see it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. I'm so curious. I need people to tell us which side of this fence you're on. Where does your brain lie? And I wonder if MRI, something must show. Interesting. Which way? Yeah. Hmm. Well, it has been. But that's what's exciting for kids is they get to most of them do that. And yeah. See it in their in their mind's eye, you know, as you tell them a story, they visually see it unfold. And that's why stories are so powerful. Like you said, when you're presenting that. Do you want to know what I wonder now? I wonder if it is harder to hold a child's attention who has the anti Mm -hmm. whatever Mm -hmm. it is, the whatever you have that you can't picture it in your brain. Like if it's harder to hold their attention for storytelling, then like if you notice there's a child who is just like completely disengaged is because with oral storytelling, they can't see the pictures. So they're just like, I can't freaking, I I don't like this. Yeah. Can't see it. So like that's something to take into consideration when you're storytelling, like maybe they can't see it. And you know, the other thing I think it really impacts, I, I don't have, um, super strong, memories interesting yeah like my my sister can recall very like vivid memories from childhood and certain things and like for me um if I look at a picture I can like recall more detail but I like couldn't tell you like anything about let's say kindergarten Hmm. like yeah wow Yeah, now I'm going to go down a little rabbit hole and find out more about this. Well, thank you so much for joining me for this podcast. It was eye-opening, just like learning all of the things about storytelling and picturing things in your head and how storytelling is play and how it shows up in all areas of life. Where can people find you, Laura? They can find me on Instagram at little stories that stick. All right. Thank you for being here. And you have a new podcast coming out soon, hey? I do. What's it Um, called? Where can they find it? I think it's going to be called Stories That Stick. Because they might not be little. And I'm going to do some stories that I tell for yourself, for inspiration Mm -hmm. or for kids. But also some theory. So some research, the reasons behind it, why to do it, tips and tricks, how to do it. And it'll be wherever you get your podcasts. 
Amazing. Yay. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks, Laura. You have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. You can find me at kristenrbpeterson.com. And where can we find you? You can find me at honoringchildhood.org. Thank you for listening. If Thank you. If you would be so kind to leave us a five-star review, we would be so appreciative. We would love you forever. <laughs>